You can turn in your Bible to John chapter 6. Our New Testament reading will be John chapter 6, verse 16 through verse 34. Lend your attention, this is the very word of God. When evening came, his disciples went down to the sea, got into a boat, and started across the sea to Capernaum. It was now dark, and Jesus had not yet come to them. The sea became rough because a strong wind was blowing. When they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea and coming near the boat, and they were frightened. But he said to them, It is I. Do not be afraid. Then they were glad to take him into the boat. And immediately the boat was at the land to which they were going. On the next day, the crowd that remained on the other side of the sea saw that there had been only one boat there and that Jesus had not entered the boat with his disciples, but that his disciples had gone away alone. Other boats from Tiberias came near the place where they had eaten the bread after the Lord had given thanks. So when the crowd saw that Jesus was not there, nor his disciples, they themselves got into the boats and went to Capernaum seeking Jesus. When they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him God the Father has set his seal. Then they said to him, What must we do to be doing the works of God? Jesus answered them, This is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. So they said to him, Then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They said to him, Sir, give us this bread always. Thus far the reading of God's word. You can turn to the book of Judges in the Old Testament. We'll read Judges chapter 4. This is the word of God. And the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord after Ehud died. And the Lord sold them into the hands of Jabin, king of Canaan, who reigned in Hazor. The commander of his army was Sisera, who lived in Haroshet Hagoim. Then the people of Israel cried out to the Lord for help, for he had 900 chariots of iron, and he oppressed the people of Israel cruelly for 20 years. Now Deborah, a prophetess, the wife of Lapidot, was judging Israel at the time. She used to sit under the palm of Deborah between Ramah and Bethel in the hill country of Ephraim. And the people of Israel came up to her for judgment. She sent and summoned Barak, the son of Abinoam, from Kedesh Naphtali, and said to him, Has not the Lord, the God of Israel, commanded you, Go, gather your men at Mount Tabor, taking 10,000 from the people of Naphtali and the people of Zebulun. And I will draw out Sisera, 
the general of Jabin's army, to meet you by the river Kishon with his chariots and his troops, and I will give him into your hand. Barak said to her, If you will go with me, I will go. But if you will not go with me, I will not go. And she said, I will surely go with you. Nevertheless, the road on which you are going will not lead to your glory, for the Lord will sell Sisera into the hand of a woman. Then Deborah arose and went with Barak to Kadesh. And Barak called out Zebulun of Naphtali, Zebulun and Naphtali to Kadesh, and 10,000 men went up at his heels, and Deborah went up with him. Now Heber the Kenite had separated from the Kenites, the descendant of Chobab, the father-in-law of Moses, and had pitched his tent far away at the oak in Zananim, which is near Kadesh. When Sisera was, was told that Barak, the son of Abinuam, had gone up to Mount Tabor, Sisera called out to his chariots, 900 chariots of iron, and all the men who were with him, from Harosheth Hagoyim to the river Kishon. And Deborah said to Barak, Up, for this is the day in which the Lord has given Sisera into your hand. Does not the Lord go out before you? So Barak went down from, the Mount, from Mount Tabor with 10,000 men following him. And the Lord routed Sisera and all his chariots and all his army before Barak by the edge of the sword. And Sisera got down from his chariot and fled away on foot. And Barak pursued the chariots and the army to Harosheth Hagoyim, and all the army of Sisera fell by the edge of the sword. Not a man was left. But Sisera fled away on foot to the tent of Yael, the wife of Heber the Canaanite, for there was peace between uh, Jabin the king of Hazor and the house of Heber the Canaanite. And Yael came out to meet Sisera and said to him, Turn aside, my lord. Turn aside to me, do not be afraid. So he turned aside to her into the tent, and she covered him with a rug. And he said to her, Please give me a little water to drink, for I am thirsty. So she opened a skin of milk and gave him a drink and covered him. And he said to her, Stand at the opening of the tent, and if any man comes and asks you, Is a man in here? Say no. But Yael, the wife of Heber, took a tent peg, and took a hammer in her hand. Then she went softly to him and drove the peg into his temple until it went down into the ground while he was lying fast asleep from weariness. So he died. And behold, as Barak was pursuing Sisera, Yael went out to meet him and said to him, Come, and I will show you the man whom you are seeking. So he went into her tent, and there lay Sisera dead, and the tent peg in his temple. So on that day, God subdued Jabin, the king of Canaan, before the people of Israel. And the hand of the people of Israel pressed harder and harder against Jabin, the king of Canaan, until they destroyed Jabin, the king of Canaan. Thus ends the reading of God's word. Join me in prayer. Father, your word is mighty. It's likened to the roar of a lion. It's likened to a two-edged sword, a hammer that breaks rocks. Oftentimes it's hard to understand. We confess that. It sets forth strange things and yet it lays our hearts bare. Father, we're grateful for your promise that attends your word, that it is a light and a lamp that your spirit 
delights to exalt Christ as we turn our hearts in faith to your word. And that your word is life to your people, sustaining us with heavenly bread as it presses us deeper and deeper into Christ. And so, Father, we ask even now that your spirit would attend this word. My words are weak, Father. Uh, I am weak. It's a marvel that you delight to use weak vessels, jars of clay, to set forth eternal power, otherworldly life, the Lord Jesus Christ. Do this even now. We ask in his name. Amen. I don't have a fancy introduction. I found myself praying this week in this very sanctuary. Maybe you've had a similar experience. I prayed, uh, Lord, humble me. And then I immediately stopped and started to qualify it. <laughs> And pictured what that would look like. What would it look like to be humbled? Yeah, humility is nice as a thought. But to be humble, to be brought low, to know acutely your weakness. Man, that's another thing altogether, isn't it? <laughs> Those things are better kept in devotionals, books, <laughs> not times. They're better kept in the thought and not the heart because when they're brought to the heart when God realizes those prayers in our hearts it's incredibly uncomfortable it's incredibly difficult we don't like weakness we don't like to admit that we are weak this is a story about weakness it's a story about the lowly it's a story about how a force of power that shouldn't have been defeated was defeated by a people that did not have the same force of power, not even close. And the reason they enjoyed that victory, the reason that incredible force of power fell was because God delights to make known his power in weakness. God delights to showcase the otherworldliness of his power through weakness. God delights to exalt the lowly. God delights to give grace to the humble. And God delights to bring low the mighty. And that's what we consider this morning. God's nearness to the humble and his opposition to the proud. So we'll look at this in three considerations. First, God humbles his people. Second, God draws near to the humble. And third, God brings down the proud. The story opens with what is a familiar refrain at this point. Verse 1. And the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord after Ehud died. This is the spiral of judges. This is the constant plunge into darkness. And this next chapter sets the stage for another oppressor and another deliverance, another episode where God's grace trumps his people's sin, where God's grace superabounds towards people who do not deserve it. 
In response to his people's rebellion, God disciplines them. That's what we see in verse 2. We read, Yahweh sold them into the hand of Jabin, king of Canaan, who reigned at Hazor. And the leader of his army, Sisera, who was living in Harosheth Hagoyim. And then in verse 3, he had 900 chariots of iron. God gives his people over to this king and his general who rules and commands a vast military force of 900 iron chariots. This little kingdom was a juggernaut in the region, the region of Syria and Canaan. These 900 chariots remind us of chapter 1. Do you remember when Judah couldn't drive out the iron chariots that were in the valley? Judah was one of the tribes that actually succeeded where other tribes had failed as they set forth their hand in faith. But even still, the iron chariots that were in the valley rejected them, opposed them, and emerged victorious. But the iron chariots, more than anything else, recall Egypt, the major enemy of God's people during the Exodus event. As Israel fled, Egypt pursued in chariots. Israel was hopelessly outmatched. They stood no chance of victory. The odds were woefully stacked against them. Considered by their native strength, there was no possible way to stand in the face of that power. And so it is again here. Jabin and Sisera are the superior force. They have their way with Israel for 20 years, making things nearly unlivable. Did you hear verse 3? He oppressed Israel with cruelty. With cruelty. He oppressed Israel with cruelty. Their lives were miserable for these 20 years. This wasn't just a casual king ruling over them. This was grave affliction. It's the same word that's used of Israel's treatment at the hands of Egypt when they were essentially slaves. Not essentially slaves. They were slaves. Helpless prisoners. But the added cruelty here is that they were slaves and prisoners in their own home. Could you imagine that? I've seen war movies, no doubt, where these soldiers take up residence in the homes of civilians in occupied lands. Have you ever thought about what that would be like? Like an enemy army just comes and sets up and then moves into your house. It's this hostile presence that's invaded the last bastion of safety that you know, your home. And you have to live with this presence. You have to live with this dominance. It's there in every way. And you are utterly helpless to stand against them. It's a truly terrifying prospect. That was something like Israel's condition at the time. And this for 20 years. They were intensely confronted by their inability to stand against this army. I'm going to go out on a limb and say that God is continuing to remind us now of our limitations. Have you felt this? Have you felt your helplessness these days? Your vulnerabilities? I don't think it's much of a stretch to say that these are difficult things to come to terms with. 
We don't like to have our limitations, our vulnerabilities in our immediate purview. We like to entertain our delusions of grandeur, our delusions of self-sufficiency, our delusions of permanence. And so when those realities of limitation, when those realities of vulnerability, when those realities of just how helpless we are come crashing upon us, we don't like it. We continue to watch as a virus unfolds and spreads, filling hospitals, causing widespread fear, uncertainty, and disruption. Can you stop it? Can I stop it? How is the church supposed to respond in the face of such an unstoppable force? It seems like governments are amping up restrictions again. Some states are requiring churches to suspend public gatherings, or they find themselves extremely limited. And these limited social interactions are having a devastating effect on the soul, on the psyche. People were not meant to live in isolation. Depression, despair, despondency are rising. Can you stop it? Can I stop it? What's the church supposed to do in the face of that? And you don't have to read much in the way of history to know that atmospheres of fear and intense suspicion towards one another are ripe for disaster. Read any book. Any book. And when you couple that with a culture that is increasingly hostile towards Christians, it's easy to feel afraid and helpless, intensely aware of just how vulnerable we are, how limited we are in terms of what we can stop and what we can bring to pass. How are we supposed to respond in the face of all of this? What do you do when the reality of your limitations, your vulnerabilities, your weakness becomes inescapable, unavoidable? That hostile presence taking up residence in your own home. Well, a reasonable answer comes in verse 3 and verse 5. The people of Israel cried out to the Lord for help, and they sought Deborah for judgment. They prayed. And they sought God's word. That's what Deborah was. Deborah was God's word in those dark days. A bit of honey in a bit of bitter time. A bit of light in a dark epoch. Like a palm tree in a wilderness marking an oasis. That's what Deborah was. That's who Deborah, that's what they sought in Deborah. In the face of fear and uncertainty, It would be very easy to lash out in hatred, in anxiety, in fear. I felt that temptation acutely. My pride rises up and I am tempted to denounce everyone as a bunch of fools and to leap immediately to imprecatory prayers. But I suspect this whiffs more of my fleshly heart than it does Christ's heart. These are increasingly difficult times, but Christ's call to us is plain, if not difficult. He gives more grace, James writes in in James chapter 4, verses 6 and 10. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves to God, humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. It doesn't say exalt yourselves and he'll meet you there. (laughs) It says humble yourselves and in his time he 
will exalt you. Do you think any of this is falling upon us apart from his sovereign care, his sovereign design? The story opens saying God handed his people over to this force. Now, you don't want to make any brash conclusions, but we confess that nothing falls to us apart from God's fatherly sovereign will. First Peter 5, 5 and 6 exhorts the same thing James exhorts. Close your, clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility towards one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you. The church's way through all of this is laid out plainly in at least one respect. It's the way of the cross. It's the way of humility. It's the way of weakness. The good news is, this is not new. For this is the very way that Christ walked the way upon which he carries us, the way God's people have always tread from time immemorial. For on this way and on this way alone, we enjoy communion with God. Isaiah fifty-seven fifteen. For thus says the one who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy, I dwell in the high and holy place and also with him who is of a contrite and lowly spirit to revive the spirit of the contrite. Isn't this what Christ states in the Sermon on the Mount? <laughs> the Sermon on the Mount, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. It's an upside-down economy this economy of grace. But what do you expect for a kingdom built around a crucified criminal? We serve a God who delights to use the weak things of the world to put to shame the strong, which is our second consideration. God uses weak things. We associate with the weak and the lowly of this world with those who have been abandoned and those who have been forsaken, which is true with reference to this world's powers. But it's not true with reference to God. And in God's economy, he delights to use the weak. The weak and the lowly are the very means God uses to showcase that otherworldly power which he pours out and he alone. Look with me at verses 4 through 11. Now Deborah, prophetess, the wife of Lapidote, was judging Israel at the time. She used to sit under the palm of Deborah between Ramah and Bethel in the hill country of Ephraim. And the people of Israel came up to her for judgment. She sent and summoned Barak, the son of Abinoam, from Kedesh Naphtali, and said to him, Has not the Lord, the God of Israel, commanded you, Go, gather your men at Mount Tabor, taking 10,000 from the people of Naphtali and the people of Zebulun. And I will draw out Sisera, the general of Jabin's army, to meet you by the river Kishon with his chariots and his troops, and I will give him into your hand. Barak said to her, If you will go with me, I will go. But if you will not go with me, I will not go. And she said, I will surely go with you. Nevertheless, the road on which you are going will not lead to your glory, for the Lord will sell Sisera into the hand of a woman. 
Then Deborah arose and went with Barak to Kadesh, and Barak called out to Zebulun and Naphtali to Kadesh, and 10,000 men went up at his heels, and Deborah went up with him. Now Heber the Kenite had separated from the Kenites the descendants of Kobab, the father of law of Moses, and he had pinched, pitched his tent as far away as the oak in Zaanim, which is near Kadesh. I want to make two observations. First, God uses two women to fell an army. And one of these women was an outsider to the extreme. She wasn't even an Israelite. She was a foreigner who lived on the fringes of Israel. When it came to war in the ancient world, it was a man's game. That's not up for debate. That's a historical given. Again, read any book. In a world dominated by power, women and children were almost always the most vulnerable powers, par- parties. As we've already mentioned, Jabin and Sisera are classic examples of what you would call hero culture or warrior culture, where feats of strength brought about glory and honor to the one who exercised these feats of strength. So in this portrait of the king and the type of kingdom that is dominating Israel, there is a critique for Israel. For once more, she's confronted and oppressed by the very type of king that she would come to demand in 1 Samuel. This time, it's not wealth and luxury as it was with Eglon, that job of the hut of appetites. Here, it's sheer power. It's physical strength. It's a warrior with the largest army. So when Israel would demand a king like the kings of the world, this is the king that they wanted. This is the king they desired. A king like Hector. I'm appealing to Homer now. Anybody read Homer? I don't even know anymore, guys. I don't know where to go. (laughs) A king like Agamemnon. A king like Ajax. Israel was like Helen sitting atop the walls of Troy with King Priam, surveying the field of warriors with her eyes huge, thinking, yeah, I want one of them for my king. Surely life and blessing will come under their reign. And so she got Saul, a king like the kings of the world, heads and shoulders above everybody else, but who was afraid to fight a fellow warrior, Goliath. Because physical prowess has its limits. So you can imagine Israel desiring this type of king. And let's be honest, we're drawn to it, aren't we? We're drawn to that sort of portrait of a leader. One who trades in in moxie and in power. You can imagine the shock when Israel's king rolled up lowly, humble, riding on a donkey. By placing these two women, Deborah and Yael, at the heart of Israel's victory, God is saying, it's not the powerful in the world's eyes that I'm interested in. The world can have her powerful. The world can have her warriors. Let them build their dark kingdoms, trading in death and darkness, and I'll showcase my light and my strength and my life in a wholly different manner. I'll bring down an army with a prophetess 
I'll bring down a warrior with a Bedouin woman's tent peg. I'll build a kingdom through a cross. Watch me. Watch me. In Pilgrim's Progress, as Christian and faithful walk through Vanity Fair, they're suddenly put on trial for their faith and for its conflict with the world around them. And they don't get a fair trial. They get an unfair trial. And faithful is condemned to torture and death. And he dies a martyr's death. And we think, weak, weakness. But what happens? What happens in the wake of faithful's death? Hopeful was born. The testimony that he bore unto death, his faith clinging to the Lord Jesus Christ, even when the darkness settled upon him in the form of pain, in the form of death, showcased the power of an otherworldly might, a power which was able to snatch another heart from the throes of darkness and probably several more besides. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 1, 27 through 29, God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. Why does God make known His strength through weakness? Why does he choose the despised things of the world to be heralds of an otherworldly glory? To leave no doubt. To leave no doubt that salvation belongs to the Lord. To leave no doubt that to him alone belongs all honor and glory and blessing and praise. We couldn't have come up with this salvation, let alone pull it off. Who would have thought that death could lead to life? Who would have thought that a crucified criminal could build an otherworldly and eternal kingdom? Who would have thought that a lamb could rescue the world? Who would have thought that losing losing would lead to gaining? Weakness would lead to strength. Not me, but God's ways are not our ways. And so he postures us again and again and again to marvel at his strength in the face of our weakness. And what is our participation in this strength? This is the second observation. We participate in this strength through our faith. This is what John writes. This is the victory that has overcome the world. Our faith. Our faith is the victory that overcomes the world. And that's what we see in Barak. It's faith. It's imperfect faith. It is weak faith but it is faith nonetheless. He hesitates, doesn't he? Admittedly, he hesitates. And there's all sorts of interpretation on what's going on with his hesitation. But I think it's fair to read this as weak faith, timid faith, fearful faith in verse 8. If you go with me, I'll go. But if you will not go with me, I will not go. He has the word of the Lord. He has the clear promise of Scripture. It's there. It's set before him. He is called to believe and enjoy the fruits of God's otherworldly power. And he waffles. He waffles. He doubts. He hesitates. But at the end of the day, he goes, doesn't he? It's not a perfect faith, but it's faith nonetheless. Even a weak faith gets the victory. Isn't that what Christ says? 
The one who has faith the size of a mustard seed can move mountains. Why? Not because of the inherent power within the strength, but because of the power inherent in the one to whom faith clings. The one who has conquered death. The one who has conquered the one with the power of death. This is the one to whom faith clings. And this faith makes us participants in this otherworldly power, such that even Barak's imperfect faith made him a participant in the victory that God had won that day. And that's why Barak can be remembered in Hebrews 11 among those who despised the things of this world. He despised them. He said, that's not the paradigm. The paradigm for victory isn't, a chari- isn't an army of 900 chariots. That's not the paradigm. That doesn't mean guaranteed victory. What means guaranteed victory? God's promise. That means guaranteed victory. Here I go. The paradigm of that world that he went up against was that physical prowess meant sure victory. And that will continue to be the paradigm of this world. The paradigm of this world will be might makes right. Power legitimizes action. And so we can ask to close, what shall this world of power come to? What shall those warriors who trade in that schema of power come to? What of those who destroy the weak? What of those who despise God's gift to the weak, who never turn from their wicked away? What happens to them? Sisera happens. We can consider last God's justice will be marvelous and terrifying. Or God brings low the mighty. I'm going to say this up front. I am for the death of Sisera. I am pro this death in every way. In fact, I read it all week. I read it every day this week. And every time I read it, it gave me a lot of satisfaction. (laughs) We get a glimpse in Sisera's demise of the fittingness and beauty of God's justice. And the joy that God's people will experience when the wrongs of this earth are required from the hands of those perpetrating them. All right, come with me. Everybody, I know it's near the end of the sermon, but we're going to do a little bit of a literary walk together. I'll hold your hand if you hold mine. There's a principle in Scripture that basically says one's wickedness will rebound upon their own head. One's wickedness will rebound upon their own head. Meaning the nature of your wickedness will be uniquely reflected in the nature of the wicked that befalls you. Dante's Inferno is essentially a poetic meditation on this scriptural teaching. So we read in Proverbs 26, 27, Whoever digs a pit will fall into it and a stone will come back on him who starts it rolling. Or Psalm 7, verses 14 through 16. Behold, the wicked man conceives evil and is pregnant with mischief and gives birth to lies. He makes a pit, digging it out, and falls into the hole that he has made. His mischief returns upon his own head, and on his own skull his violence descends. And there's another principle in Scripture which emerges directly from the character of God. 
There is nothing, almost nothing more egregious in God's sight than the powerful violently preying upon the weak and the helpless. This is reflected in almost all of Israel's laws, their concern that they were to exercise to the sojourner, the powerless in their midst, and above all, in God's constant concern for, that's right, the widow and the orphan. Sisera is a widow and orphan maker. That's who he is as a warrior. That is what he has done with his power. He has made countless widows and countless orphans. And not only that, what does a victorious warrior do to those newly made widows when he finds them in the wake of his victory? He's not just a widow maker. He's a widow taker. And he does with them as he pleases. We pick up Sisera in verse 18. 17. Sisera fled away on foot to the Kent of Yael and the wife of Heber the Kenite. For there was peace between Jabin the king of Hazor and the house of Heber the Kenite. And Yael came out to meet Sisera and said to him, Turn aside, my lord, turn aside to me and do not be afraid. So he turned aside to her into the tent and she covered him with a rug. And he said to her, Please give me a little water to drink, for I am thirsty. So she opened a skin of milk and gave him a drink and covered him. And he said to her, Stand at the opening of the tent. And if any man comes and asks you, Is there a man here? Say no. But Yael, the wife of Heber, took a tent peg and took a hammer in her hand. Then she went softly to him and drove the peg into his temple until it went down into the ground while he was lying fast asleep from weariness. So he died. How do you humble a warrior whose honor and glory were to be had in victory on the battlefield? You have him die at the hands of a woman in the heart of a tent, not the battlefield. You can notice all the domestic paraphernalia attending this. Milk, blankets, bed, a tent, even the weapon she uses to fall him is a feature of domestic life. It's a tent peg for Bedouins. And the poetry of his ending doesn't stop there. Notice verse 20. This is my favorite part. He said to her, stand at the doorway of the tent. And if a man comes to you asks and asks you, is there a man here? Say no. The ESV really botches this one because it says anyone. And it irritated me all week. The pun is on man. That's the point of the pun. He puts the words into her mouth. He says, hey, if anyone comes asking if there's a man in the tent, tell him no. Because there's not a man in the tent. There's no man in the tent. It's just a child seeking protection. One might say similar to an orphan like the orphans that he had made. And mark his end, verse 21. Yael, the wife of Heber, took a tent peg and placed a hammer in her hand. She went to him quietly, and she drove the tent peg into his temple. It went into the ground. Now he was deeply sleeping, exhausted, and he died. I got to tell you, I'm, I'm kind of annoyed at the ESV on this one too, because it translates the verb, it went into the ground, as referring to the tent peg. 
but that's not the obvious way to translate this. It's the same verb that's used in chapter 1 of Aksa when she dismounts her donkey. It's getting off of a steed. It's alighting from a beast of burden. The scene is this. He falls asleep. She takes a tent peg and a hammer and mounts him and then drives it into his head and then alights as he dies. It's a very suggestive position, isn't it? Hovering over him with a tent peg and a hammer. Probably a position that was familiar to him. For a man who had made many widows and had taken his pleasure with them, I find this a remarkably satisfying ending. And guess what? God does too. Because he ordained it and he distributed it and it resounds to his glory. God's justice will be beautiful. It will be beautiful. When God writes every wrong, when God requires from the hand of all those who are outside of Christ perfect justice, we, the angels, heaven itself, will say, this is good. No, this is perfect and beautiful and fitting and right and marvelous. That's what we'll say on that day. And we get a glimpse of it here as a war criminal, an orphan maker, a widow maker meets his end. So the question is, if this is what a war criminal in the wars of Canaan deserved, this grisly demise, what do cosmic criminals in the wars against God deserve? If an orphan maker and widow taker is reduced to a helpless child before he is killed with the hands of a woman, what does the person who rejects the God of everlasting life and light deserve? They deserve to be rejected and thrust into everlasting death and darkness. They deserve the cross. The cross is the poetic penalty for pseudo-gods, suspended and nailed mid-flight between heaven and earth. The cross is the poetic penalty for cosmic war criminals. Those who forsook the good God of life are forsaken and thrust into death and darkness. Now right now as the church we mourn. We mourn for all who reject the Son, who refuse to bow the knee, who refuse to come to God's gracious provision for sinners. And we continue to plead with not even a fraction of the passion with which Christ pleads with the lost to come and to know forgiveness. That is our posture now. That is the primary posture in which the church exists now, pleading with the lost, desiring that more and more are transferred from darkness into the kingdom of the beloved Son. So if this is you, if you do not know the grace and the mercy and the peace that comes to sinners through the cross of Christ, I would plead with you to repent, to turn from the death in which you are enmeshed, to turn from darkness and flee and know the God of grace and life. But there will come a day when we're not going to mourn anymore, when we're going to watch as he wipes away every tear from every eye, from every person 
whom he has placed in the beloved son. And the whole world will be shown for the war criminals that they are. And we're going to marvel. We're going to marvel at the beauty of God's justice at that day. And we'll marvel at the grace that we have received in the Lord Jesus Christ. But above all, we'll marvel at Christ, our lamb, who bore in his body the curse that we deserved, and our lion, who will attack all the enemies of God. Join me in prayer. Heavenly Father, once more we uh, stand before your word humbled, acknowledging that uh, your ways are not our ways. Uh, Father, we would uh, exalt ourselves and expect that you would meet us from our perches of pride. And you say that you delight to give grace to the humble. Father, we would not have designed a salvation that goes through the cross, that goes through the grave. And yet your ways are not our ways. Father, your justice is a terrifying thing to consider, for it is not our justice. It is perfect. It is fitting. It is right. And right now, Father, it causes our hearts primarily to tremble, to tremble for the lost. And so we would ask, Lord, more and more, you would be pleased to publish the good news on every hill that those who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. But we're grateful, Father, that you have promised a day when every wrong will be righted, when everything that is broken will be mended, and that you will dwell with us forever, putting away sin once and for all. We look forward to this day, Lord, and ask that you would sustain us until it comes. We ask this in Christ. Amen.